If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, the History Extra podcast reaches a milestone, as this is episode number 1000. So many thanks to all of you who've listened over the years. To mark this momentous occasion, we decided to set ourselves a challenge to cover 1,000 years of British history in one hour. I was joined in this task by one of our favourite guests from over the years, the historian and broadcaster Dan Jones. As you'll hear, we didn't quite hit our one-hour deadline, but we gave it a good shot anyway. So we decided to set a somewhat ambitious challenge and ask a historian to guide us through the last thousand years of British history in under one hour. So when we were thinking of somebody brave or possibly even foolhardy enough to take this on, one name sprang to mind and that name was Dan Jones. So Dan, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm very gamely agreeing to take this challenge on. I'm not often described as brave, so you're already (laughs) winning. I don't know. It's like I feel uh, really torn here between uh, arrogant overconfidence and uh, (laughs) terrified ignorance. So let's see which which wins. The perfect position to start from, I think. So we're used to taking a very in-depth look at things on History Extra, but by my calculations for today, we've got a very generous six minutes per century roundabout. So we should say before we go any further that, you know, we're probably not going to be able to offer a very comprehensive overview of the last millennium, are we? So anyway, we'll strap in and see where we end up. So Dan... Yeah. Let's start our journey, as promised, a thousand years ago in 1021. Take us back to the 11th century. What was happening? Do you know what was going on in 1021? Nothing. It's the worst year you could have started. Worst year you could have started in. Uh, But uh, what can we say about about the 1020, about 1021? Well, um, if we're looking at England, you know, the sort of the, the biggest part of... Um, of what we now think of the United Kingdom and and Great Britain, let's focus on that. It's ruled by King Canute, and um, if we put aside the probably not true thing about him going paddling in the sea and uh, and either demonstrating his ignorance about tides or his wry sense of humour, um, what's important about King Canute is that he's Danish, and mm. England at the time of of Canute's reign is connected to Denmark. And I think that's that's really important when we start thinking about the 11th century. Not specifically Denmark, but the sense that, uh, that the archipelago we call the British Isles um, is connected to different parts of the continent. At this point, it's connected across the North Sea to Scandinavia, and that's been true for quite a long time. If you think about the Viking invasions that had preceded uh, going back to the 8th century, uh, and it's also, as 
we will come on to in, in about 30 seconds because uh, you'll note about six <laughs> minutes per century has landed. Um, it's also connected across the channel, you know, a shorter stretch of sea to uh, what we, we now think of as France, but specifically to Normandy. So 11th century, most people are going to say, right, most of those six minutes are going to be on 1066, the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest. What's your take on those? Well, I think that develops what we've just been talking about, because when we think about 1066, we quite often think about it through the lens of the outcome, which, uh, as we know, is the Norman Conquest. It's William the Bastard, Duke of Normandy, coming over, becoming William the First, um, first Norman King of England. Uh, but of course, the, Harold and and William were not the only two players in 1066. Although they contested the Battle of Hastings, there was another Harold, Harold Hadrada, who was also a key player in the year 1066. And, and I think that that's important to remember because it shows that there is this sort of three-way tug over rule in England uh, that goes between Scandinavia across the North Sea and across the Channel to Normandy. And that's, that's a a part of uh, British history that we don't tend to think of um, automatically. And it's partly because, I mean, I've already done it. I've been speaking about England when we're talking about British history and uh, ignoring, for example, Scotland, which has had much closer and would continue throughout the Middle Ages to have much closer links with Scandinavia than England because, of course, those, those die away once our, uh, once the Norman Conquest has happened. But the Norman Conquest, look, it's it's a there's a reason why we date... Um, why we make this sort of restart in in our national history from 1066 because it was a, a a foundational year in many ways not just because you have a sort of a new dynasty of monarchs coming in um but also because there were really deep fundamental political reorganizations made during the Norman conquest you've got the doomsday book which takes a a, a sweeping survey of the agricultural, but also the tenurial, by which I'm talking about lordship, um, makeup of of England. You have major rearrangements in the way that the that England is politically organised. You have the harrying of the North. You know a uh, a, a brutal and miserable. Um, period of destruction by Norman armies across the northern part of England. Um, you also have you also see the Normans find what the Romans had found uh, many centuries before them, which was there was only a certain distance north that you could actually push in uh, on mainland Britain before it became impossible really to project political power from the south any further. Um, I think there's one great example in a in a book I've just been working on, which is not a, a specifically British history. Um, but I think will give you an idea of how uh, sweeping this uh, political reorganisation was. And it's to do with Lincoln. Now, if you've ever been to the town of Lincoln, uh, uh, sort of halfway up the east coast of England, uh, you'll know that there's a, a very steep hill called Steep Hill. And on the top of Steep Hill, there's a lovely uh, cathedral, which was once the tallest building in the world, uh, and a castle next to it. And both of those are legacies of the Norman Conquest. But the cathedral is particularly interesting because under William the Conqueror, the seat of the bishopric of Lincoln, as it became, was moved more than 250 miles from Oxfordshire, which was in its sort of south, the southwestern part of the diocese, all the way to Lincoln. And that's a purely political decision because uh, William was trying to project Norman power from 
in an area that was um, that, that was quite turbulent in the wake of the conquest. And I think that these major reorganisations of political and ecclesiastical power are the hallmark of the Norman Conquest. Um, I'm glad that you gave a shout out to castles and cathedrals there, because I think as well, it's a time of real great architectural advancement. So if we're moving into the 12th century, what that conjures to mind for me is crusades and kings. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, okay, so the first crusade, um, right at the end of the 11th century, um, 1095, 1099, um, Jerusalem falls to the armies of the First Crusade. And there's 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 not massive English involvement, certainly compared to Norman, um, uh, you know, Sicilian Norman and, um, and sort of greater French involvement in that First Crusade. Nevertheless, I think as the... Uh, as the 12th century wears on, you do start to see um, the Plantagenet dynasty in particular, who, who arrive on the English throne in 1154 with, with Henry II's accession, um, start to play a more important role in crusading. So Henry II, for example, is actually offered the crown of Jerusalem, um, although he declines to take it up. His son, uh, Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, um, and successor, obviously at the end of the 12th century in the 1190s, uh, leads the Third Crusade, along with Philip Augustus of France. Um, and their great rivalry plays, you know, which is sort of exported from England and France, uh, is played out on the other end of, well, not even Europe, on the other end of the Mediterranean um, in the Holy Land. I wanted to ask you actually about um, Richard and his successor, his brother John, because they're often kind of portrayed as two sides of a coin. Richard, the Lionheart, the brave, the good king, bad king John, who takes over and ruins everything. What Do you think that that's a fair portrayal? Or is there a lot more nuance inevitably than that? Um I think historically with Richard and John, so now we're, we're going from the, we're into the late 1180s through, uh, well, the end of John's reign through the, the uh, 1216. Um, I think we go in a sort of historical loop with this because the starting point is, is as you describe, you know, Richard on the one hand, the sort of paragon of maybe not chivalry, but certainly of warrior kingship. The dark reflection is is manifesting King John, the sort of uh, the the administrator, uh, but the the distinctly unchivalrous, cruel, incompetent, uh, rather unsuccessful military leader. And I think that the interpretation of those two characters has uh, has changed over the years. So there's been some revision uh, to the heroic um, idea of Richard the Lionheart and emphasis on his cruelty towards hostages, you know, during the Third Crusade, his uh, his draining of England to fight wars um, in what's now France um, thereafter. And, you know, people have looked at John and said, oh, well, you know, he wasn't such a bad guy, but aside the starving of um, of his subjects and his, his, you know, rank incompetence and the murder of his relatives. He was a very good administrator. But I think what, you know, when you, I think that wheel has turned again. Um, and although there are certainly ambiguous readings of, there, there are many ways which you can read Richard's reign, depending on what you want to get out of your medieval kings. Uh, there's only really one way that you can read uh, John's reign, and that's as uh, abject failure. I mean, one of the least successful monarchs 
um, in all of, of English and British history, for that matter. Well, John's reign takes us into the 13th century. I'm going to pick up the story with Magna Carta. Why is that held up as one of the, the key milestones of British history? Well, we can link these two things together in a way, can't we? Because uh, Magna Carta, uh, the, the first edition of which was granted at Runnymede in June 1215, um, is is two... Well, it's, in, in a sense, it's three things. In the, in the first place, it's, a, it's an attempted peace treaty in a civil war between John and his barons. In the second place, it's a running commentary on John's reign and his abuses of his powers as king... Uh, to oppress, tyrannise, um, exploit his subjects, and particularly his his tenants-in-chief, the, the richest and most powerful barons, oligarchs in a way, in the land. But in the third place, it's a commentary on the whole of Plantagenet government. So in the 12th century, as we've just been talking about, the Plantagenets arrived with Henry II. There'd been major overhauls of lots of different parts of, uh, of English um, political and um, administrative rule. One of the one of the major um, crisis points had come in the uh, in the long running and dramatically settled argument between Henry II and his um, erstwhile first minister, turned Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, turned Betonoir. Uh, Thomas Beckett, which had ended with Beckett murdered um, just after Christmas in 1170 on the floor of Can- uh, Canterbury Cathedral. Now, that sort of thing doesn't go away, and uh, and it had festered really the this sense of um, not overmighty, but of sometimes dangerously out of control King Plantagenet kingship. This had been a running theme since Henry II's reign, but it really culminated in John's reign. So Magna Carta of 1215, uh, as as well as a short-term reading of it, which is about John and his barons, you've also got to take a longer-term reading of it, which is to do with what the Plantagenets have been doing to England in particular since the 1150s, 1160s. And and, and that really culminated in this, this howl of anguish that is Magna Carta in 1215. So yeah, in terms of, of British history, we... we we still look back, particularly in England, on Magna Carta as somehow uh, the the sort of foundational point of democracy, which is is certainly a strange way to read it, but of the rule of law, which is a is a, a safer way to read it. And we've seen this um, in the la- in recent months, right? I mean, all over mm. England, and, and there have been protests against lockdown and uh, on the part of small businesses, typically businesses like hairdressers and gyms, uh, based on an internet, is it a meme, is it a rumour? It's probably a bit of both. Um, uh, Let's call it a rumour that says, if you post Clause 61 of Magna Carta in the window of your shop, um, then you can claim exemption from coronavirus legislation. Now, obviously, that's not true. Um, it's the product of a sort of silly internet factoid that's got out of control. But I, I, I think you have to take it seriously as well, because what mm. you know, what would drive sensible people uh, to post Clause sixty one of Magna Carta, which is the security clause, which actually says if King John breaks the terms of Magna Carta, his barons are kind of legitimately and legally go to war with him. And it was removed because it was such a disaster. Because uh, it legitimizes war effectively, it was removed from all subsequent issues of Magna Carta. But why are we looking at Magna Carta as 
uh, the saviour of business from coronavirus legislation? Well, because it's, it's gained this mythical status and this celebrated status in some part of what we now consider our national, or English national culture. And that does matter. So I think that 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 tells us why we have to keep studying Magna Carta, have to keep thinking about Magna Carta, because it's still emotionally uh, an important part of the way uh, we view ourselves. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? So as we move through the 13th century, what are some of the rumbling tensions and conflicts that are going on? Well, I think the 13th century politically in England uh, is a commentary on Magna Carta. And you see the problems that Henry III experiences during his reign, um, which culminates in the uh, 1250s, 1260s, in full-blooded revolution, really, um, led by Simon de Montfort. Uh, the, the birth of Parliament between the 1230s and the 1260s, or, or, or certainly, yes, I mean, we can call it Parliament, a, a body that... Uh, that meets irregularly with the king um, to discuss grants of taxation and reforms to government. I think all of those spring out of a commentary on the fundamental principle of Magna Carta, which is uh, to what degree is the king or the government, the executive as we now call it, obliged to obey the law? And to what degree is the is the king, the executive, the government obliged to consult the people in making and amending laws? All of those things lie at the heart of of the long running and slow burning conflicts of the 13th century, and all of them are very much a, a reaction to what had happened in in 1215. So I think that that's that's the sort of political constitutional reading of the 13th century. But I think there's a, another important part of the 13th century we need to talk about because, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, as I keep sort of half reprimanding myself, I keep going on about England. Uh, but the 13th century is a foundational point in the relationship between England, Wales and Scotland. Now, that's nothing to do with uh, with Henry III, really. It's much more to do with his son, um, Edward I, Edward Longshanks, the uh, the so-called hammer of the Scots. And and from and his reign really is is a moment where uh, enormous damage is done. We talked about uh, very briefly about castles earlier on after the Norman Conquest. Well, yeah, I mean castles were brought to England by the Normans. It was a key piece of, of a military technology uh, in Norman England. But my goodness, they were um, they were radically transformed in the 13th century the you know these enormous stone-built concentric monsters um which Ed, edward i and particularly uh his um his chief architect master james of st george you know the the the, the vast amount of money that's spent on building castles places like carnarvon conway mm. conway sorry um Bomaris, you know this this chain of them that are stamped around snowdonia and 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 Northern Wales and Anglesey. It's it's an astonishing piece of um, colonisation, really. This stamping out of independent Welsh rule, and and at the same time a co-opting of native Welsh legend. You know, Edward the First was extremely um, uh, cunning and calculating about the way that he not only militarily squashed the Welsh 
uh, but also took away their um, or, or co-opted to England their legend. So the the Arthurianism, um, the, uh, the the very fact of a Prince of Wales. You know, he sent sent his wife Eleanor of Castile to give birth to his son and eventual heir, Edward II, at Carnarvon Castle, so that there is a, a, a native-born Prince of Wales, but it's an it's the son of an English king. And, and then the same in Scotland. You know, the matter of Scotland, as, as, uh, towards the end of his reign in particular, Edward first interferes in a Scottish succession dispute and then wholesale tries to annex Scotland, takes away the Stone of Schoon, uh, you know, symbolically... Uh, tries to neuter Scotland and bring it within his his greater British kingdom. I mean, this is a this is a fundamentally important moment in the history of relations between England and Scotland, which again we can see played out today. I mean, if you go back um, to 1996, I know obviously for some listeners that's that's unimaginably far in the past. Um, I'm now so old I can remember it. Uh, <laughs> The, the move to return this, you know, return the stone of Schoon and um, and and make make amends for this, uh, <laughs> what was taken from the Scots as long ago as twelve ninety six. This this really mattered, and uh, and the issues of devolution, which have not gone away, all of this stuff actually goes back to the thirteenth century. We're we're still living with the consequences of what happened in the reign of of Edward I. Conflict with Scotland leads us through um, from Edward I to the reign of his son Edward II and the 14th century. Um, Edward II wasn't to have a brilliant end to his reign, was he? Um, because he was overthrown. He was overthrown. Uh, he was overthrown by his own wife and her lover, which I think makes it worse, actually. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd be more annoyed. I'd be more annoyed. But he's also murdered in Berkeley Castle um, after his deposition. Uh, probably not with a red hot poker at the bum, but you know why not re- re- repeat the rumor, even if we're saying it's not true. Uh, I remember, God, one of the first TV shows I made, Britain's Bloodiest Dynasty, which was first broadcast on Channel Five. We were we were doing four Plantagenet stories, and we we it was a sort of anthology of little. Uh, drama docs about the the Plantagenets, and we were going to do Edward II because it's, it's a very, it's a it's a good story. It's a good story, Edward II. It it neatly fits into a TV hour, and it has a nice little shape to it um, because it's a story of someone doing really bad stuff and getting their comeuppance. And I remember sitting in the production meeting, and we were saying, right, I mean, the red hot poker's got to come into things. But like, how are we going to do that? Because it's not true. And we're like, do do we? It's going to be a real sort of uh, damp squib if if we say. And there were rumours that Edward II died with a red hot poker mm. up the bum, but it's probably not true. And so we solved it in the you know the oldest uh, <laughs> and cheapest way possible, which was dramatising the red hot poker moment and then saying, but it's probably not true in in a, as it were like a TV footnote. So um, give the people what they want. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that that speaks to a. Sorry, I know we're slightly off topic and, and mm. burning minutes at the moment, but I think it's <laughs> I think it's important as we're thinking about you know history in the big sense. You know what, what um, or which myths do we want to abandon, and which do we actually want to hold on to, even if we know that they're probably uh, not quite right. You know, we started off speaking about King Canute 
uh, with his toe, toes in the in the shallows, going, uh, get back, see. And I think all of us, when we consider that image and think about it for not very long at all, can see that that's probably not literally true. That probably didn't literally mm-hmm. happen. Um, but it's a useful mental picture that tells a story on its own. And I think that we, we as consumers of history, uh, are smart enough to embrace cognitive dissonance, by which I mean mm. we can know that something is not true and still see the value of it as a story in itself. And I think that, that Edward II and the Red Hot Poker has a little bit of that about it. Um, I think we probably all know that's a, uh, a gothic um, small g exaggeration of a miserable end. However, uh, it's it's an image that plants a sort of vision of a time in our minds. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to pivot as slightly away from um, royal history for a moment to give a very quick shout out to Geoffrey Chaucer. So uh, we have Canterbury Tales from the 14th century. Anyway, enough said about that. We'll move on now to... Is that all the time Chaucer's getting? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Let's give a quick big up to Chaucer then. Big up Chaucer. 14th century is really cool. I love the 14th century. One one aspect of it which was not so cool that I do want to ask you about is the Black Death, which of course a lot of a lot of people obviously have have drawn historical parallels with recently. Yes, that they have drawn historical parallels with the Black Death recently. I'm not sure um uh that 40%, 50%, maybe even 60% mortality is something that we really want to uh, even tempt fate by talking about in our own times. But look, in the 14th century, it, to move away from characters and and dynastic history and royal history for a moment, at the start of the 14th century, uh, something quite boring is afoot. And that, that boring thing is demographics. And the, there are possibly, maybe even probably, about 6 million people Uh, living in the British Isles uh, at the start of the 14th century. Now, a combination of great famine of the the second decade of the 14th century and uh, terrible weather, um, you know, a a major period of climate change uh, beginning, the Little Ice Age, and then the Black Death, which arrives in the late 1340s and, and recurs in waves throughout the 14th century. I mean, this has a long-lasting uh, and profoundly reshaping effect on British history. Um, not only does that population fall from uh, po- possibly probably 6 million to possibly probably 2 to 3 million, not to recover uh, until the start of the 18th century. Wow, uh, I didn't realise it mean, was that, that long. That's, well, it's, demographics is is just it's numbers in one sense, but it's 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 also very 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 important. And if you look at the shape of uh, demo, you know Britain's population numbers alone throughout the thousand years we're talking about, it tells an interesting story. You know, if you if we start in 1066 or you start in the 11th century with about two million people between the Norman Conquest and the Black Death in the 1340s, the population has tripled. Thereafter, it falls back to its sort of Norman levels, rising slowly to the start of the 18th century. And then you start, we'll come on to this when we get into the later centuries, but you see this incredible, incredible explosion in the population in the 19th century. And 
uh, and then a sort of a, a, a smaller but also significant rise in the 20th century. And I think that those 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 numbers alone are extremely important. We don't often think about them, particularly when we go when we're th- when we're earlier in our story of Britain. But they, it does really matter how many people were here and where they were living. Anyway, to to return to the 14th century, the Black Death is without question the shaping moment in British history in the 14th century. The Hundred Years' War is very important. The Hundred Years' War is, is, is uh, somewhat reshapes the uh, the economy of the country. It certainly brings about a huge amount of, uh, of death and devastation, although most of that is loaded into France and, uh, and, and uh, to a lesser degree, Scotland um, and the Iberian Peninsula. But it's the Black Death. It's it's this demographic catastrophe which has the longest lasting effects from the 14th century, partly because uh, it, it changes economic, feudal, political relationships between people, but also because it seems to spark a new age of creativity. Um, you've mentioned Geoffrey Chaucer, and let's give him his third big up, big up Chaucer, <laughs> because he really brings or folds into um, the, the mainstream of, of high culture uh, written in the English vernacular, things that have been happening sort of 20, 30, uh, even 40 years before in Italy. And he sort of brings the... Um, the poetic and and early Renaissance sensibilities of Dante and Petrarch into into England, and uh, we still, or I think we still should, uh, talk about think about uh, read teach Chaucer today because he's I mean he's a genius he's a genius who's plugged into uh, to the the wider European genius, a very good social commentator as well I think Chaucer, well also genuinely funny. Genuinely mm, funny yeah. and able to take uh, take old stories, reboot them. You know, we, we, we think we're so modern now, don't we? It's very hot at the moment to go, hey, we're going to take this old story and reboot it and make it, you know, relevant to our times. And I, no one's ever thought of that before. Aren't we clever 21st century kind of uh, champions of the arts? Listen, Chaucer was, Chaucer was doing this in the 14th century. Chaucer... Uh, like Shakespeare after him, was a was a true genius, not only in his mastery of the vernacular, not only in his extraordinary breadth of of knowledge, not only in his deep understanding of story, but also in his, his kind of brilliant cosmopolitan outlook. And as I say, I say it again, his wit. I'm I'm very drawn in history to people who are funny. I think you can get away with almost anything if you if you can say a witty thing uh, now and again. And and possibly I'm I'm commentating on my own career as well as those who've gone before me. But that like that, I I just I just love people who make me laugh. And Chaucer Chaucer makes me laugh. Um so I'm gonna pick you up on something you mentioned there, the Hundred Years War to carry mm. us through into the 15th century, because one of the main clashes of that that I think most people will um have heard of, obviously, is Agincourt in 1415. Um, so we have Henry V um, leading the charge there. What do we need to know? Yes, it's funny, Agincourt, isn't it? it, it, it this uh, it, we've, we've talked already about Magna Carta um, in 1215 as this, uh, this semi-mythical foundational kind of event in, in our history. 
and Agincourt almost exactly 200 years later, in October 1415. Agincourt occupies the same place. I've, I think I've yet in my life ever to watch an England versus France uh, football or rugby match in which someone has not mentioned in the pre-match punditry uh, the Battle of Agincourt. It, it's, it's peculiar. Look, and, and I think some of that is Shakespeare. And I'm sure we'll get on to Shakespeare. Or as the lens through which we look at uh, English and British history. Um, obviously, Henry V, the poetry of that play, uh, has, has helped fix Agincourt in our minds. Um, it's also a great victory. But it's, it's, it's very late stage, Hundred Years' War. Um, at the moment, I'm writing something about Cressy, you know, 1346. And actually, the the really exciting period of the Hundred Years' War for me is the is the earlier stages where you've got this incredible political skullduggery uh, between England, France, Gascony, Flanders, uh, major uh, um, encounters at sea and on land, um, Schleus, 1340, Cressy, 1346, uh, Siege of Calais, 1347, Poitiers, 1356. Uh, and then there's this sort of, this lull and things go go rather badly wrong actually in un, under Richard II and then and then rally again under Henry V. Um I think the more you look into Agincourt, the less romantic it's it becomes. And um the sense of Henry V as this in, this incredible orator who was able to summon a sort of spirit of Englishness and uh, and convey it to his ordinary troops and, and then lead them into battle against uh, terrifying odds. For me, I think most of that is for the birds. And uh, one of my favourite Agincourt um, probably facts is that there was no great speech before um, before they went into battle that Henry V's uh, words on leading his men were, fellas, let's go. I saw, I, I, I actually quite, yeah, I mean, I, I prefer that version of the story. It's a bit myself. less romantic than fellas, the Shakespearean version, isn't it? Yeah, but it's also, it's... That's the other bit of Englishness that I I I find. I think we have to always um, remember to puncture our pomposity about ourselves, uh, which is that there is a kind of gruff thuggishness, uh, particularly to the English. The Welsh, I'm, I'm putting aside, you know, uh, the, the Welsh have, have got poetry, man. Um, uh, but there, there, there's this sort of brute thuggishness in, in English history that 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 we always have to remember. But look, yes. Okay, so the Hundred Years' War um, has a sort of uh, there's a, there's a swan song under Henry V. However, Agincourt is a poisoned chalice, really, in the in the longer um, sort of stretch of the 15th century, because it's a moment that leads to the conquest of Normandy, the occupation of Normandy, and then Henry V. Um, brilliantly but disastrously dies as as soon as he's achieved absolutely everything he wanted to achieve leaving a nine-month-old successor in the form of henry the sixth and an awful problem which is um how on earth are you going to hold together an english crown which also dominates wales and uh, and has delusions of dominating uh, scotland and ireland uh, and actually has to rule most of northern France. Like, how how is this supposed to be possible? And they wrestle with it for, uh, you know, manfully uh, for about 30 years. 
um, before the whole thing goes very, very badly mm. wrong. And in the seeds of the collapse of the English effort in the Hundred Years' War lie the origins of the Wars of the Roses. It um, definitely feels, doesn't it, as as we talk through it in this in this really broad lens approach, that we kind of cycle from one series of conflicts into another. And as you say, this then leads us on to the Wars of the Roses. One thing we, we're not very good at doing um, when we talk about British history uh, is putting it in a, a broader European context. And the story of the 14th century is of uh, is a very fragile polities across Europe, um, in Italy, particularly in France. You know, that Henry V's success in the Hundred Years' War uh, springs out of what is effectively the French Wars of the Roses, the burgundian Armagnac conflict. Uh, and so there is a sort of delicious irony in, in the fact that having succeeded so mightily in the Hundred Years' War, uh, England gets a, a, not quite a taste of uh, her own medicine, but certainly um, they have their, their dynastic conflicts. And the Wars of the Roses, you know, which, which last from the 1450s through the uh, 1480s, when they're resolved, mostly resolved at the Battle of Bosworth, mm. 1485, uh, is, a, is a really doleful and disastrous um, time in in English history, a really sort of heedlessly destructive um, period, which uh, I've I've written about a lot, and um, and get more depressed about <laughs> every time I do. I think um, because it's uh, it's just this period of enormous waste, um, destruction, and and actually quite small minded pettiness. Uh, in which leads or leaves its stamp certainly in royal history in uh, petty arguments about legitimacy and about uh, legitimacy being based in in blood what matters in rule and a, a disproportionate uh, sense that um legitimate royal blood you know pure royal blood should be the uh the marker of who gets to rule which by the you know don't worry we're getting to 16th century which plays out in the 16th century disastrously under henry VIII. before we do move to the 16th century i'm actually going to be the one to um drag us back to the 15th for a minute i think we should discuss richard iii and again shakespeare crops up because his image of richard iii has been so lasting um, on the way that we think about British history traditionally. What's your take on Richard III? Richard, Richard III is... OK, read this statement any which way you like. Richard III is perpetually fascinating. Um, and ostensibly, it's quite hard to see why, given that his reign only lasted two years and two months. And in his reign... I, I can already hear the Ricardians howling about, uh, you know, some sort of progressive-minded social legislation. Forget it. In his reign, he did almost nothing. Yet, a as I recall, almost every time you good people at BBC History run your Hot 100, the poll for who, which historical figure uh, you're most, most fascinated by, uh, Richard III beats Jesus. Richard III beats Hitler. Richard III beats absolutely everybody. So there's no, you know, there's no gainsaying it. People are completely, uh, well, or th there's two two possibilities. One, people are completely fascinated by Richard III, and I think that's probably it. Or two, uh, this, this is the equivalent of when um, that 
carp fisherman won BBC Sports Personality of the Year because all the readers of the Angling Times were uh, got together. It may be a sort of Ricardian plot along those lines, but I I, I don't want to speak too harshly of the Ricardians because they don't like me anyway. Um, why is Richard III so fascinating? Uh, it's... Okay, it, because it, there's a great mystery, isn't there? And there's a sense mm. of injustice. And part of the sense of injustice is Shakespeare's fault. Shakespeare, mm. although drawing on a long, um, you know, quote-unquote, uh, Tudor version of history, uh, which seeks to um, lay all the blame for the Wars of the Roses on the person who was holding the ball uh, at the end of the match, as it were, and, you know, on on Richard, which is quite unfair, Um in doing that, in characterising Richard himself as the, the embodiment of evil and of of every single political disaster of the 15th century, in doing that, and in, in, in Shakespeare's case, not exclusively, but particularly, uh, conflating that with his physical deformity, disability, with his, you know, what we now know was uh, a moderately severe scoliosis, has created uh, a monster and a black legend, a legend that is so black indeed that it it feels and probably is very unjust. And, and there are people who feel like this should be fought, this should be resisted, this should be corrected. So you have the combination of a mystery, who actually killed the princes in the tower, um, a, great in, a, a great and grave injustice, uh, owing a lot to Shakespeare's brilliant um, but historically rather biased uh, vision of Richard. Those two things combine um, to create a deep fascination with the king. And we've also got a name check, the discovery of Richard III's remains in Leicester in 2011, 2012. Um, because that, more than anything, except for, for Game of Thrones, in the last 10 years has reignited or, or ignited a fascination uh, among ordinary people with um, with medieval history. I mean, that was an astonishing piece of uh, work and luck. You know, let's let's be honest. It was uh, the, the chance... I remember at the time that it was proposed that there should be a dig in Leicester to examine the ruins of the Greyfriars slash look for Richards, depending on whether you were talking to archaeologists or Ricardians. Um, the whole thing seemed so harebrained and silly. I can remember going to see production companies... Uh, or the production company who eventually made the film, The King in the Car Park, and they were slightly rolling their eyes as they were pitching this um, this TV show. And they're like, "Look, there's some there's some academics and some cranks, and they've kind of got together, and they're they, they, some of them think they're digging for a church, and some of them think they're digging for a king, and we can't sell. We couldn't. They couldn't sell it to the BBC. The BBC wouldn't buy it. Uh, they went to Channel Four. Channel Four said, "We're not. We're not even going to give this to Time Team. That's how little Channel Four thought of this project." Uh, at the time, gave him a couple of days filming money and said, if you turn up anything, we'll give you a bit more. But honestly, this feels like a wild goose chase. That was how we, it all looked. And then mm. bang, oh my God, first day of digging. They find, they literally find the lost remains of Richard. This is the best story ever. This is like, you know, opening the King Tut's tomb or whatever. It's, it's, it's real triumph good. of the underdog, it's isn't It's world it, news. It's triumph of the underdog. And, you know, this is why Coo Steve Coogan's making the film about it at the moment, which is going to be fantastic because it is a wonderful, wonderful story of uh, of a true uh, British eccentric who goes apparently on a wild goose chase and strikes it lucky. Oh, my goodness, what an amazing story. So, look, what is the fascination with Richard III about? 
um a lot of it is uh, is meta, isn't it? A lot of it is the uh, the story of the story now, um, but look, it's 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 great, and it and in general, I've 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 been sort of slightly snidey and um, and catty in some of my remarks in the last five or ten minutes, uh, but in general, isn't it wonderful that we do have a king who inspires such love that there is a society dedicated. Um, to research, you know, serious academic research, uh, and also to public engagement in Richard III. You know, actual shout out to the Ricardians because they do an amazing job and are generally very passionate and, and nice people. Um, and and the debate over Richard, uh, which seems to be eternal, is very good for all of us. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In the twenty first century, in Britain. We're not living with the same rapid demographic population growth. There, there certainly are historical reflections between this period of enormous enterprise, enormous wealth generation, enormous population growth, enormous modernization, and rapidly growing inequality. The death of Richard at Bosworth leads us on very nicely to the rise of a new dynasty, of course, the Tudors. And I think it's pretty fair to call the 16th century the century of the Tudors. So who for you is the best or the most fascinating, let's say, Tudor monarch? Well, the only the only character who in my experience, approaches Richard III in terms of uh, popular celebrity today is Anne Boleyn. Um, and, and through Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII, uh, who is, I think, an extraordinarily fascinating figure because, uh, I, I, slightly to echo what I said about Edward II, Henry VIII, Henry VIII's reign has the character of a fairy story. It is Beauty and the Beast in a way, isn't it? You know, well, or it has elements of Beauty and the Beast to it. You have this, you know, wonderfully charming, erudite, sporty, good-looking, uh, you know, young Renaissance prince who can stand toe-to-toe with Charles V and Francois Premier in France, who turns into the bloated, grotesque, bluebeard monster, you know, devouring women, uh, ruining his country. Um, a great, what was it Dickens called him? I'll probably misquote, but, a, you know, a, a, a great spot of blood and grease on the page of English history. Um, the, whether or not or how much of that is true about Henry VIII or not, it does still have the shape of a of a captivating story, uh, and there's a reason why it's one of the first historical stories that we teach children in school, um, and one that that people come back to again and again throughout adulthood because it is it's grotesque. It is a grotesque story, um, and it, it's also the fusion. Um, of high politics with kitchen sink drama, right? Mm, completely. So it's got the have... soap opera of the wives, and then on the other hand, huge political um, ramifications in the form of the dissolution of the monasteries, a reformation, everything like that. The establishment yeah. of the Church of England. Absolutely. And, um, or historiographical terms, <laughs> we, we tend to think of these two poles of, of 
historical storytelling and interpretation. On the one hand, you have is is are we is it great man or woman history uh, in which histor- history is driven by characters and individuals, or are we structuralists where we say no, there are greater forces, demography, which we've mentioned already. Um, uh, if you're Marxist, you know, class relations. Which of these things form form history? Well, in the Tudors, you have these triangulated, don't you? Because you have the uh, the uh, the ego and actually the sexual ego of one horrid man as a lightning rod for all of these changes that are that are taking place across the West. You know, particularly with regard to the Reformation, and it it all comes together in this psychosexual drama. I mean, this is why the Tudors are endless, endlessly fascinating. Um, so, so in in sort of pure story terms, it's Henry VIII who who kind of bestrides the 16th century, and he'd have loved that image, I think, as well. Bestriding, have you ever seen his that that big suit of armor in the Tower of London with its mm. uh, its projecting belly? Uh, you know, it, it, only the codpiece extending further out from it. Um, but, uh, whether or not he he is actually the most important of the Tudors, or whether we should be looking at uh, at Elizabeth the First reign, maybe maybe we should. If, if we think about Henry the Eighth's reign as the breach, you know, the break with Rome, um, where the hand grenade is thrown, uh, it's Elizabeth's reign where everything is is pieced together somewhat, where the the um, re- the future relations between England and the great powers in Europe are uh, ha- have to be resolved. Um, where the the consequences of her father's reign are, are in a sense played out, uh, and 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 it it may well be that Elizabeth is the the more significant of the Tudor monarchs, but I'm I'm drawn to these slightly fabulous stories, um, by which I mean they have the, the quality of fables, and and for that reason it's it's Henry VIII's reign I I go back to. I mean Elizabeth is is of course extremely important, um, and extremely important because. Uh, here is somebody. Well, here is a queen for a start. Mm. For goodness' sake! I mean, there there have been women who've ruled England before Elizabeth. Anyone who wants to know a lot of, a lot about them should go and read Helen Castor's brilliant, you know, timeless work, uh, She Wolves. Until you have Mary the first, and then Elizabeth, um, there has not really been this this amount of of power, political power, royal power. Uh, exerted and operated by a woman in England. If all history is a dialogue between present and past, then, of course, Elizabeth has foundational importance to the way we tell English-British history right now. Because, And I think this may be a theme that we come on to as, as we move mm. into the, uh, particularly into the 18th century. It's no good us pretending there is such a thing as objective history which just exists externally to us. The amount of power of agency uh, that women operate in society and the way that society allows or constrains women to act and the way that men act towards women, for good or bad, is profoundly important to us today. And so it's natural that when we look at history and when we tell our historical stories, we emphasise the moments in our national history uh, that speak to what we're going through today. And people get very um, wrought, overwrought about about this, as though uh, if we go and look for sort of 
uh, go and look for examples in history of women doing cool things that we're sort of telling quote unquote woke history or we're telling you know feminist history no we're just we're just looking at history in terms of what our preoccupations are now and that's not a bad thing because history is there to contextualize what we're experiencing at the moment anyway i digress and uh, we've probably got about 30 seconds per second <laughs> i mean there's no way ever that we're hitting the hour marks so let's just roll with it but i think let's move on now into another jam-packed century the 17th, as every century before this has been. But, I mean, we start with a bang, pardon the pun, um, with the gunpowder plot of 1605. And from there on, I mean, it's it's tension and it's conflict pretty much throughout. It's funny, the 17th century, isn't it? Because um, I've got two children who are uh, 9 and 12. That's their ages, not their names. And they are... Uh, they, so they do history at school. They've done primary school history. And a lot of, you know, after after we get through Henry VIII, what do they learn first? Well, you've just mentioned the gunpowder plot. Uh, did you mention the, the plague? I'm not sure, but the Great Fire I didn't, of but I was going those, to. Those are the three biggies. Gunpowder plot, plague, Great Fire of London. Um, they go really early with those things. And I think it's for obvious reasons. These are These are things that kids can really imagine. Oh, my God, they tried to do what? They tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament. I've seen that on TV, but they didn't. It's a great story. I mean, it's sanitised. You don't. I, my children don't usually learn about the sort of grotesque torture of uh, of Guy Fawkes to the point where if you his signature, Guy Fawkes' signature on his confession, that alone tells a story, doesn't it? Mm. That hand that's been barely able to write his own name, that's one of the most poignant things I've seen in uh, on a historical document. That signature, you know, you remember Hemingway talked about six-word stories. I mean, that's a one-word or two-word story, isn't it? Um, but here's the, here's the sort of tension in what we think about when we think about the, the 17th century. You, We place the uh, fire plague gunpowder plot above the fact that we literally cut off the king's head <laughs> in Whitehall and didn't have a king for ages and had a full-blown revolution uh which the consequences of which lasted for the rest of the century you know only when we get to really 1689 right with bill of rights 1688 glorious revolution 1689 bill of rights are the consequences of that thing really settled my goodness I still don't know why we shy away from um, the civil war and the interregnum quite as much as we do uh, when we are telling the story of British history. Because finally, it is British history. You know, it's it's Scotland and England uh, and Ireland. Although, of course, that's not British. But you know, the, all of the islands of this archipelago participate in this mad bit of mid 17th century history it's definitely not in the in the mainstream popular history is it in the way that the tudors are or or even say the wars of the roses but why do you think that is because it's very complicated it could be that it's very complicated and the religious politics of it are are alien to a 21st century mind you know Mm. we are so irreligious uh, in britain today uh, certainly in Christian Britain today, uh, there's, there's just it's just not embedded, and that's not a criticism. That's just a fact. 
Uh, it's not embedded in the way we think about ourselves very strongly at all. And so possibly it's, uh, it's the stakes are not particularly obvious to us today, uh, whether England was a Catholic nation or a Protestant nation. It's hard, it's hard for us to get our heads around why that, care, why that should matter. Personally, I think that's probably a good thing. You know, sec- religious sectarian... And, and by the way, I'm, I'm putting Northern Ireland outside the, 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 what I'm talking about here and, and certain bits of Scotland. But uh, by and large, in Britain today, sec- Christian sectarianism does not loom large. It did in my childhood. You know, of course it did in my childhood. But, um, but that, that's sort of got... So maybe it's that we, we fail to understand just how high the religious stakes of this thing were. Maybe it's just that it's a bit embarrassing and we don't really think of ourselves as a revolutionary country. And by and large, the story of, of when we think about the story of, uh, of British history, uh, we have this, 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 whether it's illusion, whether it's, uh, whether it's a caricature of ourselves as a sort of um, a, fair, a stable polity that... In, in which things evolve, they don't revolve. So our law is based on common law. We don't have, you know, the, anything so vulgar as a, a constitution, a document that we venerate, uh, or, or that's that's in a building where we can all go and sort of bow down to. You know, um, maybe it's just a little bit embarrassing that we did this. Um, Perhaps also because it, it didn't stick, did it? Of course, um, because we obviously had the restoration and the return of. The monarchy with Charles II. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's that actually we're judging the story by its end, um, and maybe because the revolutionaries were really just not very heroic. Do you know what I mean? Cromwell cuts the king's head off, and what does he do? Bans Christmas. Look, I, I know this. Seventeenth-century specialist screaming at me right now, but that that's that's how we think about it, right? Um, we don't like Puritans very much, and um, and I think also. To return to a point I made uh, earlier about Chaucer, Charles II is quite funny. I'm sure he's not very nice either. Um, and but he's a slightly ridiculous, he's a merry monarch. You know, yeah. it's, I mean, he's definitely the right person to restore uh, restore monarchy. Um, so I don't know. It's it's. I don't think I've come up with the right answer here as to why we don't think more about the Civil War because it'd probably help us a lot if we did. Um, to, to figure out what our history is really all about, but we're much more comfortable uh, thinking about this this time slightly before the 16th century. We're we're, we're much more uh, we're much better able to process and deal with than the uh, the ugly 17th. Yeah, I think it's long overdue for um, the 17th century to have its moment in the in the popular history spotlight. I think. Um, yeah, but people so, have been saying that forever, and it never does. To, yeah. It's really hard to sell the 17th mm-hmm. century. And they've been, there are fantastic, there are brilliant historians writing about the 17th century. So it's not for want of trying, but I don't know. Well, let's move on anyway to the 18th century. So for me, this is, this is a century, if I just go with what springs to mind, of big wigs, big scandals, and political intrigue. My history teacher at school, Mr. Green, wonderful man who, who got me in, got me interested in history, taught me at A level. 
Um, he, he was adamant nothing happened in the 18th century. I said nothing happened in 1021 at the beginning. Mr. Green wouldn't have that anything happened in the 18th century. But the more I think about it, uh, the more I'm, I'm coming round to the opinion that everything happened in the 18th century, including a lot of things that we think happened in the 19th century. Um, because in a way, this is, this was when the, this is the rule Britannia century. Okay, it's not it, Rule Britannia written in 1740. By the way, an exhortation and not a sort of statement of fact. There is a comma in it. Rule Britannia exclamation mark. This is this is really the period where, um, and and maybe this is connected to what we've been talking about in the 17th century. Britain gets the revolution out of the way early, and while you know France and all, of course the the American Revolution is connected to to Britain very deeply. Um, it's it's in the past, and and it sort of seems to free up Britain to go and rule the world, as it were, during the 18th century. So you have um, obviously at the beginning of the century, the United Kingdom comes along. I mean, there's the Act of Union, mm. so uh, we we can now talk about a United Kingdom of of England, of Scotland, of Wales. But it's also a time of um, of sort of just burgeoning national self-confidence and of institutions and so many things that that are still hanging around today. You know, the British Museum was founded in the 18th century. The Royal Academy was founded in the 18th century. The Times newspaper, other newspapers are available, was founded in the 18th century. You know, and, and at the same time, Britain starts to march to this position of global supremacy, of, of, of ruling the ways, of the Navy being the, the most powerful um, military force in the world, and of the of empire expanding, you know, partly through private means, you know, East India Company in India, uh, and partly through sort of uh, national means through involvement in uh, you know, Seven Years' War, the, the playing out these conflicts with with France, carving up parts of the Spanish uh, uh, Empire in the Americas. You know, what we didn't talk about when we talk about the seventeenth uh, about the sixteenth century was uh, Britain's relative failure to get involved. With the uh, the rampaging and exploitative New World um, empires that Spain and Portugal really led the way, and particularly in the Americas, but also uh, also in the Indian Ocean, and and so so Britain sort of catches up in the 18th century and lays all the foundations for what we tend to think of as a 19th century phenomenon. You know, this this pink map, red map of the globe, with the with the sun never setting on on the British Empire. Well, all of that owes enormous amounts uh, to the 18th century. Now, of course, what we're seeing, you know, again, to bring it back to things that we're trying to puzzle our way through today, this is also the century of uh, Britain's sort of peak involvement in African slavery, transatlantic slavery, um, in in the wealth that uh, that was created by slavery being, uh, being used to help found institutions and, and very grand houses and so on. There's no getting away from any of that. Um, and of course, you know, as I was uh, saying earlier with regard to female rule in the 16th century, this stuff now seems very important to us because mm-hmm. as as issues of race and, and race relations uh, come, you know, rise to the fore of the cultural conversation, we go looking for origins and history. So I think that the uh, the 18th century is probably due its, well, is having its moment um, because people are starting to, to question, okay, wh- where did all this stuff begin? What, what has Britain's role been in 
in institutions like slavery and and to what degree has a sort of a sense of colonial exploitation underpinned um the success of our nation today however all that being said i think i think the 18th century and you know we talked earlier about chaucer i think the 18th century is is very important in the further development of of the english language uh, but partly because you have you have dr johnson writing his dictionary in the middle of the of the 18th century but look the 18th century is uh, uh I'm I'm definitely not no longer of the opinion that nothing happened then. Mm. Um, historians often talk, don't they, about the long 18th century, and I think of what we quite often think of as 18th century trends, so Georgian trends, kind of carries through into, um, as you said, the Regency era of the early 19th century, and I think the 19th century then kind of falls into two categories for me. So we have, you know, the the end of the Georgian era, we have Jane Austen, Napoleonic Wars, all of that. And then we have the the Victorians, which really mm-hmm. are something quite different, aren't they? They really are something quite different. Um, we talked earlier about Shakespeare and about uh, this idea that Shakespeare in the, in the 16th and early 17th century is the lens through which we look back onto the onto parts of the Middle Ages, particularly the Wars of the Roses? And I think, in a sense, the uh, the Victorians play a somewhat similar role in that we look back at British history through the eyes of the Victorians, and partly that's you know you could see that played out, for example, architecturally. So, what's the first thing people? think about if they're not native to Britain when you mention London, it's uh, Houses of Parliament are high on the list, right? And they, the Houses of Parliament seem to be this symbol of, of Britain's kind of uh, ancient um, st- political sophistication stretching all the way back to the Middle Ages, or certainly the continuity of... of which is a total fabrication. We've already talked about the, the great rupture of the 17th century where we literally cut the king's head off. There is no great continuity. However, uh, we have this sense of it. Now, that, as we know, the Houses of Parliament, Palace of Westminster, bar a little bit of it, was built after the fire of the 80, 1834. And, uh, but it was built in this sort of neo-Gothic way, suggestive of... of Britain, the roots of Britain's greatness lying back there, just out of mind in the Middle Ages. And this sort of brings us back to what we were talking about with Magna Carta before, because uh, in terms of historiography, which you could argue, well, it, it really gets going, doesn't it? Sort of the great era of British history writing with Gibbon back in the 18th century. However, there's this flourishing of history writing in the 19th century, and all of us historians uh, working on British history today are still indebted to 19th century scholars who went around transcribing and translating uh, endless uh, chronicles and, you know, and administrative records of, of British government. So this is enormous, uh, what's generally called Whiggish uh, interest in the story of Britain, um, which, in a sense, we're telling at the moment, but uh, but a, a teleolog- teleological story in which uh, that the the grandeur of the Victorians was the the end product of everything that of all the struggles. We're still living with the shape of that story, so we're still living, you know, visually with the Victorian age. And in fact, mm-hmm. if I, I I'm sitting looking out my window, 
uh, in fact, I'm sitting in a Victorian house looking at another Same. Victorian house across the street. We're still living in, a lot of us living in Victorian houses, um, thinking uh, about history through a sort of, vic- in a Victorian shape. So I think I think that's one important uh, thing that comes out of uh, of the 19th century. Um, I also think, because there's a major turning point in the 19th century in terms of the historical archive, there's a little... The, the, it kind of starts, I suppose, back in the 16th century when you have Hans Holbein, who comes over to England, starts drawing uh, what we now see as very lifelike portraits of, of great historical figures. But the invention of photography during the Victorian era now the daguerreotype, of course, in 1837 is, is in France, but uh, the the type here in 1841, we start having a photographic record of history. It's in black and white. Now I, I'm I'm slightly biased here because I've I work with Marina Amaral who uh, who colorizes black and white photography, and and thereby brings this period, quote unquote, to life through uh, through colorizing these black and white photographs. Uh, however, I do think this is a, a a deeply, deeply important turning point in history because if you think about the Crimean War, for example, the horrors of the Crimean War, even though they're they're somewhat sanitised when Roger Fenton, the, the great photographer, goes over and takes several hundred photographs in the Crimean War, there is now this, uh, this much more lifelike record of war mm. uh, that, it, uh, that is somehow much more horrifying than paintings uh, from only a couple of decades earlier of, you know, the Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm. And I think as as history moves forward, the importance of photography, the importance of, of, of video, the importance of the, um, the captured image starts to become very, very, very important. And crikey, today, in the early 21st century, everything is, is image, right? You know, mm-hmm. we are... We're living with that turning point today. And, you know, the, the the obsession with taking photographs of absolutely everything, the obsession with putting photographs of what you eat for breakfast, your dog doing a funny face, you know, you name it, photograph, 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 photograph. I think it's really important that we consider um, where that historical process began, and it is with the Victorians. Mm-hmm. Again, the Victorians did lots more important things. Lots more important things happened in Britain during the Victorian, during the nineteenth century, than just photography. But again, it's to bring back to this theme that when we mine the, the long period of British history, we it's okay to think think about it in terms of what animates us today and go looking for the origins of, of that. Maybe another thing that people don't consider as a Victorian legacy, but should, is sport. Um, because if you think about when were the first international rugby match, cricket match, football match. It's all the 19th century. It's 1844 is the first mm. test match, I think. 1870, first rugby international between, I, th- I think it's the USA and Canada, weirdly. Um, and then the first football international, England-Scotland, is 1872, I think. Sport today is one of the, the biggest entertainment industries in the world. Where does it begin in its organised fashion? It's with the Victorians, and and again, this is probably not traditionally how we have how we've taught the nineteenth century. You know, even when I was at university, it was Gladstone, Disraeli, and and Tory and Whig politics, right? But I, 
I'll say it again. It, let's think about these centuries from time to time in terms of of how we imagine ourselves today and how we how we interact with the world and one another today. I'm interested in photography and sports. So that's what you're getting from the 19th yeah. century from me. No, fine. I mean, I'm a massive aficionado of the 19th century, and and Are for you? me, it's it's kind of. I thought you I hand... thought you'd been shaking your head at everything I'd said. What? <laughs> no, like, what a load all. of rubbish! <laughs> Stick to the Middle Ages. I think for me, it's on the one hand, it's it's this kind of duality. So you have enterprise, innovation, um, modernization, respectability, and then on the other hand, you have the Dickensian London of of, of poverty and slums. And I think the other aspect of it it is exactly what you said, that there's so much of our our modern country that you can trace back to the Victorians or you can see the roots of it there. And that, for me, is why it's so interesting. So I could talk about this for hours, but... Well, no, no, and you're absolutely right. But but to your point about uh, that interplay between um, innovation and deprivation, which is something that's as valid today as ever... Very much so. A, a long time ago now, um, in the course of this conversation, I mentioned demographics. And there is the fact that the population of, of Britain quadruples during the 19th century. I mean, that is of profound importance because on, on the one hand, technology both enables, uh, sustains greater populations, um, drives greater populations but also also drives massively greater wealth and massively greater misery. And although in the 21st century in Britain, we're not living with the same rapid demographic population growth, there, there certainly are historical reflections between this period of enormous enterprise, enormous wealth generation, enormous population growth, enormous modernization, and rapidly growing inequality and that chime i'm sure that will chime with people thinking about the, the world we're living in today you know elon musk elon musk is a victorian character uh, to me you know this this sort of um this this rampage i'm sure he wouldn't think of himself in this way but this this uh this rampaging kind of capitalist uh, would-be visionary um possessed of, of vast 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 wealth um strikes me as but also absurd totally absurd strikes me as somebody who's who stepped right out of uh the pages of dickens and um and into our world so i mean our hour-long deadline is far behind us in the we busted that deadline <laughs> but let's move on to the sprint finish of the 20th century, which I'm sure the phrase sprint finish will be having 20th century historians clawing their eyeballs out. But I think I'm just going to go in with the, with the big hitter really here. Obviously, the, the first half of this century is dominated by two world wars. And we've talked a lot about the way that we kind of think of our own history um, throughout this discussion. And I think there is a dichotomy there that we see First World War as a tragic, um, purely sad loss, the war poets, and we think of Second World War as a crusade against evil, really. Um, what do you think about that dichotomy? I think you're you're absolutely right. I think that it takes a long time, it takes several generations, I think, for major historical events to show themselves in a sort of shared worldview. And the Second World War is a really good example of that. Um, Britain fought on the right side in both world wars. Nearly didn't, 
Um, but it did. And the uh, the results, the sort of um, the psychological results of having ended up on the right side of two world wars set against uh, the long-term decline and loss of empire, prestige, and significance as a global economic and military power has created something very confused uh, in British sort of cultural self-awareness. A couple of years ago, I was very pleased and lucky to have dinner with George R. R. Martin, who writes Game of Thrones. And we had a, a, a fantastic wide-ranging conversation in which I was sort of uh, in awe, really, of his, um, not only his ability to tell great stories uh, and to fold in different periods of history to his storytelling in Thrones, but also the sophistication of of his historical understanding, which I think is greater than maybe people give him credit for, in the sense that he sees, if you read the Game of Thrones, which are high fantasy, historically informed novels, uh, but he he sees the complexity of human life in all of his characters. And there are very few characters George has ever written who are either purely good or purely bad. And I was, I was saying to him how impressed I was that he consistently managed to... to to work with this 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 complex vision of of the human character, but also of history at large, and he said, "Well, that's that's how history is." But he said that there's a problem uh, in people recognizing that today, and it's the Nazis' fault. He said because prior to the Nazis, you would never have, uh, if you'd invented the Nazis, had they not exist, if you'd invented this uh, this evil <laughs> group organization political organization social cultural movement uh who were the literal embodiment of evilness who turned every uh, every tool of of mechanization and modernization to the ends of conquest murder and destruction <laughs> right and they went about with skulls on their uniforms your editor would say this is completely unrealistic and stupid don't you can't do this However, it actually happened and they did exist. And Britain ended up on the right side of a war fighting to defeat Nazism. Uh, a war that was, when you read it like that, Star Wars. You know, it was a story of pure good versus pure evil. And although that was the right thing to do and it ended, uh, although with tragic loss of life, etc., uh, the right way with the defeat of Nazi Germany and her uh, uh, fascist allies... Um, it has left a a rather simplistic view of how history operates, which is that it can and often it can be and often is uh, a battle between good and evil, which is in fact very seldom the case. It just may it just it's very hard to get our heads around not only the complexity of of that part of twentieth century history, but also honestly to deal with uh, our our own country's the legacy of it to us today. So we've spoken about a millennium of history, but I mean, now we're coming down to the last 80 or so years and it feels like within that time, there's just been unprecedented um, acceleration of change, but probably that's just because, you know, it's more, it's more close to us. Um, no, I don't history. think so. I disagree. But do, would, you, would you say that it has seen that? I disagree with you. I think that um, 
by pure fluke, you and I are alive and talking uh, in the midst of a revolution that is of uh, equal significance to the Industrial Revolution, if not more, mm. um, and of equally world-changing uh will have equally world-changing consequences. And I and I recognise exactly what you're saying, which is that as people um, first and as historians second, we prejudice our own experiences. We, it, it's, we find it very hard to um, downplay the importance yeah. of our own experiences when compared to those of people before us. However, on this occasion, we actually are living through um, a time of epochal change it's and it's many it's it's confluence it's many things together it's um it's a changing climate it's um it's a, but it but most more than anything else it's, it's the technology the, te- the technology mm. revolution in computing and communications uh has is changing the world in such rapid fashion that um within the space of three or four living generations, the world will become unrecognisable. You know, my great aunt, who died a couple of months ago at the age of 99, worked at Bletchley Park in the Second World War. Um, And so she was born in 1921. Well, her grandparents, or great-grandparents, let's speculate, were around, certainly at the time of the American Civil War, probably at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, right? Um, so she would have known people who were alive, uh, certainly during Queen Victoria's reign, maybe even before. Um, and when I'm a lot older, and say my children have grandchildren, you know, so there will be a sort of living link between those two. But what my grandchildren experience compared to my great aunt's grandparents, the world will be unrecogni- unrecognisable, unrecognisable. And that's not that long a period for uh, for that degree of of historical change. And it's interesting, but what I what I think is is so fascinating as I observe people reacting to this 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 fast changing world is that they look to history to to explain it and to think about it. And that's not always comfortable. We've talked about the 18th century uh, and and people you know mining the 18th century for uh, for the origins of of cruelty you know slavery uh, oppression colonialization because that's something that they feel speaks to their experiences today it's people are looking to history to try and understand what we're going through now and what we what may lie ahead of us um that gives me that gives me hope thanks for listening And thanks to our guest for this episode, Dan Jones. His books include Crusaders, an epic history for the wars of the Holy Land. And his next book, Power and Thrones, a new history of the Middle Ages, is set to be published in September by Apollo. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow we'll have the final episode in our Bayeux Tapestry series. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.